Well, with my role with the North American Mission Board and church planting, uh, I get the opportunity to travel the highways and the byways of Ohio, specifically on the eastern side. And I've lived in Ohio for pretty much my entire life, and I felt like because of that, I knew the state pretty well. But there was one area of the state that I did not know very well, and that was southeastern Ohio. Kind of a forgotten part of our state. And I had much to learn. That was an area that I was going to be working in. I remember I had a meeting one time with a pastor down there. And he told me, as I, as I was talking to him, he says, if you're going to get an idea of what it's like to do ministry down in this area, he said, I encourage you to pick up and read the book, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And I said, okay, I can do that. I, I, I want to be able to contextualize things and, and learn about the culture and the people. I can do that. I do a lot of driving, so I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And I said, that's no problem. So I did just that. I found it. I started listening to it. And I could not stop listening to this book. It was, it was fascinating to me. And a quick kind of synopsis or a rundown, J.D. Vance writes this memoir for a lot of reasons. And I will say that he does not mince words if you read the book or if you've seen the, the uh, uh, movie that they put on Netflix. But they, they use a lot of the authentic language and different things that, that take place in the book. But, but J.D. grew up in the holler of eastern Kentucky, and it really was a holler. He lived there until his grandparents had moved to Middletown, Ohio. His mother eventually followed her parents there after her uh, and J.D.'s father had gotten a divorce. And so J.D. recounts many of the stories of growing up in a broken family and the craziness that happens in a culture where you do not care much what anyone thinks and you do just the minimum to get by. And there are stories, I mean just crazy stories, of his grandmother coming into their living room and lighting her, pouring gasoline, lighting her grandfather on fire because she was angry at him. Stories of J.D.'s mom threatening him in many different ways, um, being humiliated in front of his friends because of his mom. His mom threatening him while they're driving a car, and he jumps out of this car as they're driving. And, and then she starts chasing him with the car, so he runs like the nearest house and, call the police, my mom's like trying to do something. It's just wild, these things. It's like, this really happens? Like, this really happens. But during the book, you find out something about J.D., and really the entire book, and, and shows his readers this, that he loves his grandmother very much. He respects her and he loves her. Because the whole family did not have much to get by, but they did. And something that his grandmother continues to beat into J.D.'s brain is this idea of hard work and your education. Your education matters. You need to study hard. You need to get out of this lifestyle cycle. You need to get out of this poverty that we're living in. And this is, this is the solution. J.D. thought that Grandma was one of the smartest people in all the world. And all those times that Grandma continued to let J.D. know that education matters, it eventually paid off for J.D. as he got out of Middletown, Ohio. He went to the Ohio State University on a military GI Bill and eventually went to Yale. Got his Doctor of Jurisprudence. I think I said that right, Jonathan. His law degree. This is after the fact, but some of you might know he's currently your senator here in Ohio, one of your senators. It's truly a rags-to-riches story. But the thing that stuck out to me was exactly what Grandma would tell J.D. over and over again. Hard work and education matter. And they do. 
But today's passage is going to tell us even something more that matters. The greatest thing in the world that matters. The resurrection. And if you look at your outline, kind of see how we kind of broke it down to kind of give you an idea of where we're going here this morning. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34. So those first, those first few verses, 12 through 19, I think Paul is asking a question. He says, what if Christ has not been raised? You kind of see this question, answer, question sequence. 20 through 28, he answers that question. He said, but Christ has been raised. And so we do have hope. And then last, he, he kind of starts out, verse 29, with another question. And, and I think what he's trying to get at is, what does it mean that Christ has now been raised? What does that mean for us now? What do we do with that? So I think there's a lot of application that Paul is pulling from. Typically what he does in some of his letters, he starts out the first part with an argument, and then he kind of ends the letter with application. So this is going to be, a, I think, a little bit more heavy application sermon. So join me in reading 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 12 and we'll read through verse 34. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, this, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if Christ, for, sorry, if, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of most, we are of most people to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when the, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, teach us this morning. Humble us. 
Help us to be more like you. Help us to see the incredible hope that we have in the resurrection. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what if Christ has not been raised? Paul starts off this passage with a question. There's an issue at hand about the resurrection, and some are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And last week we learned about the evidence of the resurrection, the validity that Jesus did rise from the dead. We saw many reliable people to see, to, to be, to see this. They saw it. They knew it to be true. We see in verse 12, they're even proclaiming or preaching this as true. The only problem is they're saying the dead are not resurrected. This is a major problem. It was not Christ's resurrection they're questioning, but believers' resurrection. Paul says in verse 13, he says, you cannot separate the two. You cannot have Jesus raised, but not believers, those who have trusted in Christ. This cannot happen. If the dead are not raised, then Christ himself has not been raised. This is his argument. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching of the gospel is in vain. And what you believe is not true. And the gospel falls apart on this event. There is no resurrection. There is no gospel. Do we see how these two inter- interconnect? This idea of believers being resurrected and Jesus being resurrected. You cannot have Jesus being raised and followers of Jesus not being raised. They go together. They go hand in hand. And this is what Paul is saying. So Paul lays this argument out to the readers to show that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then you are lost. You are lost. You are still in your sins. And there is no resurrection for you for me, and we are wasting our time. We are wasting our time. Verse 15 even says that if you believe this, and you are even misrepresenting God, not about you, but that sounds kind of like a threat. Misrepresenting God, I don't want to be a part of that. And you look at verses 16 and 17, we see that Paul is making a point. He's pretty much saying what he's already said. There's repetition that takes place. He lets them know, if Jesus has not been raised, then you will not be raised, and you are still in your sins. There is no salvation for you. And we think about, the, I kind of already mentioned it, the Christian faith hangs on this event. And I think this is why Paul says later in verse 32, he says, well, if this is true, then let us, eat, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I say for this, for Christian in the room, there is more to this life than eating and drinking, for tomorrow we die. Once again, we saw this last week about the people that saw the risen Christ. There were were many people, up to 500 at one time. And some of them, many of them, it said that they were still alive. So you could go to them and ask them, tell us about this. And then we also, we we read the book of of Acts and the apostles and how they, they pushed back they leaned into culture and tradition. It talks about people gave their lives for Jesus because they believed this to be true. And if we think about it, it meant a lot for someone to put their faith in Jesus in the first century. Do we realize what they are up against? What the culture and tradition is saying to them? They have persecution coming from every side, telling this story about this man from Nazareth. He was God in the flesh. And he died a humiliating death on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. 
That's a crazy story. That's a crazy thing to say. But they believed it. And it's the greatest event in all human history. There's not a greater thing that's ever took place. And if we believe this, it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. It costs them, it costs us today. How do we know this? Well, we just go back to the Gospels. Think of two instances, specifically in, in, in Luke. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Die to yourself. Later on, Luke chapter 14, he says, Renounce everything you have. Then come, follow me. And then we look here in verse 19. It's a very convicting verse. Where Paul says, If Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's a sad reality if this is true. And I thought about this and I said, do, do, our, do our lives reflect this idea? Mentioning about following Christ, about this verse. I thought about Christians then. I thought about Christians throughout history. I thought about the American Christianity. I thought about myself. This is a convicting verse on our own lives if we think about this. Living in somewhat of a very comfortable America, suburbia, most of us, not all of us. But what would people say about us if we died? They'd say that, that that guy, that gal, she believed in Jesus, but it did not seem to have much of an effect. Did not seem to have much of an effect. Would, these, would the skeptic who, not, uh, who did not believe in Christ say that he lived his wife in such a way that I pity him because he believed a lie and tomorrow we die. Believing in Jesus does not seem to have that much of an effect on them. It's just belief. There's no sacrifice. There's no suffering. There's no surrender. Life looks very comfortable. It looks very normal. And I would ask us, are we okay with that? In reading what verse 19 has to say with us, if there is no resurrection, and we're believing in believing a lie, and Christ is all we have hope in this life, then we are to be pitied. I think they were pitied because it was very obvious that they, they lived their lives sacrificially. And it made me think of this, this, this quote from William Carey. I think it somewhat relates. William Carey, a, a seventh, 18th century missionary to India, he said this, he said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I'm not, a fail, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. So are we more about the success of the things that don't matter? When there is a resurrection hope that we believe to be true. This was said nearly 300 years ago. I wonder if Kerry would saw today the success of the Western world, what he would say now about that. I remember one of my first mission trips that I ever went on um, was six weeks over in Eastern Europe. And... Uh, we would go out, we would talk to university students, uh, many of them living in a kind of a post-Catholic culture. It's probably the best way to put it. So there's a lot of skepticism. Um, most of the people we talked to, they were, they were, agnostic, they were agnostic, they were atheists, um, and they, they, were, they were very strong in their stances. Like, they, they'd done the research on this stuff. And I remember sitting down and, and having a conversation. We would typically go with, with two people, not just walk by ourselves, with, some, with somebody else. And uh, I remember during this one conversation with this, this, this engineering student, he was very smart, and, 
you know, we had a very long conversation. It went for an hour. And I remember the conversation, the person I was with, they, 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 they put out this, this idea or this, this philosophical idea called Pascal's Wager. Anybody in the room familiar with Pascal's Wager? All right. So Pascal's Wager. Pa Blaise Pascal, he's a 17th century philosopher and math math mathematician. And he puts together this argument of why the Christian religion is rational. Okay, this is how it goes. So just kind of follow with me. It says, Pascal says this. He says, let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is, that God exists. He says, let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, it, it, sorry, if you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he is. So Pascal, essentially, he says this. He says, he says what do you have to lose? He says, you believe in the Christian God, you lose nothing. You don't believe in the Christian God, you lose everything. Here's the problem, though, with, with that argument. I think Scripture disagrees with that. I think, I think what Paul says in verse 19 disagrees with what Pascal is saying in his wagering. He says, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the gospel, you lose, you lose nothing if it's, if it's not real. And if, and if you don't, you lose everything. I would say that Paul would say... No, you put your faith in Christ. You, you do lose everything. It is, it is a risk. But oh, it is worth it. It is so much worth it. And why do we say that? Is because what happens in verse 20? Because Christ has been raised. He has been resurrected. Paul's once again, he's going back to what was already said in the first part of the chapter. He says, Jesus has been raised. And because of that, so will you. You can trust in him. He is the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits. He has gone before us. He is the first to be raised, and because of that, you too will be raised. We have much hope in that. And essentially, this means that your faith is not in vain. Your preaching is not in vain. Your faith is legit, and you are not wasting your time living for Christ because you too will be raised in glory with him. How do we know? Paul tells us in verses 21 through 23 here, where he kind of lays out, how, how does this take place? He says, how, how, does this, how does this happen? It happens through what we see. It's, it's death came through Adam when he was raised in the garden, or when he was, sorry, when he sinned in the garden. He wasn't raised in the garden. He, was, he sinned in the garden. And there was no death until sin had taken place against God. And this brought death. Most importantly, it brought separation from God brought separation from God. And God's response to this was not to leave his creation in their sin, but it was to send himself, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And he lived and he died. It is only through the resurrection of Christ that we can be made alive the way that God had originally designed. I think there's a couple important things to point out in these verses. This idea of all in verse 24, 22 refers to all who have trusted in Christ, not all people. Um, just those who have put, put their faith in Christ and repented of their sins can be made alive. Um, and I think it's also important to point out as well that um, all will be resurrected. All will be resurrected. But those who have trusted in Christ, in G Christ Jesus and repented of their sins will be resurrected with God. And those who have not trusted in Christ will be separated for God for eternity. I don't think we see this idea, this theological idea of annihilation 
meaning that people that have not trusted in Christ, they, they're eventually killed off, and there, there is no my, more life for them. I, I do think there is life for them, but I think that, that life, they are separated from him. And obviously, we've also mentioned, too, that there is not this idea of universalism, that all will be resurrected and be with Christ. I think the Bible is very clear on those, on those two things. But I just want to make that clear for everybody. So I don't sound like a heretic up here. But the more important aspect here is that those who place their faith in Christ will be resurrected and be with him. And that's what Paul focuses on here. He's not so much worried about those who haven't trusted Christ. He's talking about those who place their faith in Jesus. You will be resurrected. And now this is where the passage starts to get a little fuzzy. Those that have read it before. So hang with me. Hang with me. We're going to get there. So Paul then takes us through an eschatological sequence of verses 24 through 28. Now I'm just going to put a disclaimer out there. This is not my strong suit when it comes to systematic theology, is eschatology. Okay, so looking at this. And not only that, but this is even the most controversial part of this whole passage in verses 24 through 20, uh, 28. We will get to verse 29 here shortly. Okay, because so I know some of you are you're holding on tight to that right there. Because there is some debate on when is Christ coming and when is the end? When does it happen? Is there a period in between? When are believers raised? Is there a rapture? I don't want to get into all that because I don't want to bury the lead in the main point of what Paul is getting at, which is Christ's resurrection and that believers too will be raised. But I do think we do need to talk about it. I want to follow the kind of sequence of, of what we see in verses 24 through 28. Because I think the text does help us, and it really focuses on the main argument that Paul's getting at. So if you look at it, verse 24 through 28, it says, Then the end comes. And there is not certainty here, but it seems like the end comes when Christ comes. And there maybe is not this period in between from what we see from the text. I think it's important that we focus on believers being raised and unbelievers in this section. Because Paul is clear with that. So we see the sequence that Christ will come, believers will be raised, the powers and the authorities of the earth will be destroyed, and the kingdom of God will be given over to the Father. And Jesus will reign, and death will be destroyed. And this is something worth believing in. No matter what you believe about your eschatology, this idea that, that Jesus is coming back, he is going to defeat everything, and he is going to reign, and believers that have trusted in him will reign with him. Man, there is so much hope with that, because death, disease, sickness, disaster will be no more. And that is such a good thing. Turn with me to, to Revelation chapter 21, because I think this is an important scripture to read when looking at that, because I think what John says in, in, in Revelation 21 really connects to what Paul says here in these four verses. So Revelation 21, 20, or sorry, verse 2 through 7. Verse 2 through 7 says this. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the front saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Do we long for that? Do we see the beauty of the resurrection with that? That death will be destroyed. Enemies will be defeated. No more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. And I love what, what, what John puts here in, in, in uh, verse 5. He said, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. Believe that, Christian. Believe that. This is a promise. This is a promise to us that we will be raised up with Christ and be children of God forever. But Paul does not stop there. He leads us to now verse 29. Verse 21. The apple of some of your eye, but not mine. And as I was studying this, even John MacArthur said, this is one of the most difficult pat or verses to interpret in all of Scripture. So we have that going for us here, okay? Uh, and the reason that is, is there's so many different legitimate reasons and interpretations to say, like, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. So I think it is important, though, that we just get clear the air here, that this, ver this verse does not promote baptism of the dead, does not promote baptism of the dead, it does not suggest baptismal regeneration. It does not say anything about baptism as necessary for salvation. Um, uh, living people are not saved through baptism, let alone dead people, right? Let's get, that, let's get that very clear, okay? But it is important to know what Paul is trying to do in this section, right? So we're bringing this text into, in, into context. So what he's trying to do in this section. So he's going back to the idea of the dead are not raised. He's saying if the dead are not raised, then why would we baptize? Why would we baptize people? Why would we suffer? Why would we risk our lives in danger if this is not true? He said it would be better to eat, drink, and to be merry, to live our life, to live the best life that we could live uh, because this is all there is. So I think it's important that we see the forest within the trees and not get hung up on the idea of what is Paul saying about baptism. Focus in on Paul's argument here. Now, I have consulted many of you in this congregation about this passage. Uh, why are we baptizing the dead if there is no resurrection? Why, why, are we, why are we doing this if it does not mean anything? You could also see that in the context, even just historically, that a profession of faith in public by baptism was a death sentence to a hostile environment, a hostile culture. People will be lining up to be baptized. And after this profession of faith in public, um, not, people will be killed because of it. There were laws against this. So that might be something to consider with this passage, that they're baptizing the dead because essentially they were, they were being baptized and they were being killed because of it, culturally. I do think, though, ultimately what, what Paul maybe is saying here, and I would not hang everything I have on this, on this thought or idea, but I think what Paul is showing us here is that they are baptizing living Christians whose bodies are perishing. They're dying. They're decaying. 
just like everybody else in here, right? We, we, we all have a death sentence. Our bodies are dying. Our bodies are decaying. And like everyone else, these bodies will rise again. These bodies will rise again. So I think Paul is arguing that baptism of perishing bodies are useless if they are not raised. If our bodies are dying, then, then why are we doing this? This is why, going back to verse 32, drink, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Because why are we doing this? Why are we baptizing people if the resurrection too? It resurrection isn't, isn't true. Why do we baptize decaying, dying bodies if it means nothing? And I think in context, similar to what the argument he makes here in verse 29, he kind of continues that here later on in, 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 in 30 and in 31 and even 32. Where he says, in these extra verses, he says, why are we being in danger? Why are we risking our lives for a lie? Why are we fighting beasts? In Ephesus, once again, let's not get hung up on the beast aspect, right? But, but Paul is risking his life for Christ. He's giving it all. He says, whatever it takes, because we have a resurrection to look forward to. We have hope. You look at the second half of verse 32 here, after, after he lays it out, he says, we, we talked about this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then stop believing this, because we need to live the most easy comfortable, coasting life that we can live. He said, stop giving your, your, your time to the church. Stop giving your resources to the church. Start living for yourself. Be selfish with, with your life because tomorrow you die. Life is short. We know this. As we continue to age and each year goes by quicker and quicker. We know it because we've experienced it. But not only that, no one is guaranteed to wake up tomorrow. No one is guaranteed to wake up tomorrow. This has somewhat been real to me as, as I work with church planters. We had a situation that took place about a month ago where uh, one of our church planters' son had collapsed in his front yard. And uh, he had been sick, had some digestive Issues and he just collapsed. And he, him and his older son, performed CPR on him for 45 minutes till the squad got there. Took him to the hospital. They life flighted him. Long story short, he had so much brain damage done. 19 years old, had so much brain damage done that um, they couldn't save him. And so they had to make the the hard call to get rid of all the machines that were keeping him alive and say goodbye to their son that was 19 years old. And I, uh, I met with him on Friday, just two days ago. And uh, it, was a, it was a sombering conversation and just kind of asking him, how are you doing? Your, your son just passed away a month ago. And kind of his response was, you know, we're, we're, we're doing as good as we can with everything that's kind of going on. But he looked at me and said, I don't know how people do this if they have no hope. In Christ, I don't know how people would would get by. He's like, I, I, I see why, why when tragedy happens, why marriages dissolve and and just opioid addictions and alcoholism. He said, but I have a hope. Our family has a hope, and we're clinging to that tighter than we ever have because we believe we're going to see our son again someday. 
because we have resurrection hope. Paul responds kind of in an assertive way. If you look at the end, uh, kind of the end of this passage here, look at verse 34. <laughs> Very assertive. It says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Stop sinning. Stop believing this lie. Believe in the resurrection. Believe that Christ was raised. Believe, too, that you will be raised. God wants to use you for the kingdom. How do we know this? It says, for some have no knowledge of God. Some have no idea in this city of Corinth, in this known world around us, the Mediterranean Sea, they don't have a clue. They don't know who God is. I think Paul is kind of telling them, stop fighting, stop arguing, stop believing untrue things. The church is to be a light for the gospel, united together for the spread of the gospel. And there is an urgency for eternity, as Paul closes out this, this letter. And it made me think of this quote, this, this quote that I heard one time. When I, was, when I was doing international student ministry at Ohio State, working with a lot of people coming from 1040 area countries, window area countries, and places like China, and India, and um, Thailand, and Nepal, and all these different places, places where not, not much Christianity, there's, there's no gospel, there's, well, people aren't Christians there. But I heard this quote, it's by a guy named Oswald J. Smith, he was a um, pastor theologian, a a Canadian pastor theologian missionary, and he said this, he said, we talk of the second coming when half the world has never heard of the first. And I felt like that this quote fit really well with this passage, because we talked about the second coming, but we we also see that there is, there are some that have no knowledge of God of the first coming of Christ. You know, things, and from what even Paul said, things have not changed much today in our world. That There are many people that have no knowledge of God around the world and in the United States. It made me think that sometimes I, I think I need to wake up from my comfortable, easy, moral life. Because I, I think times, that's, that's where I am. And I think the church should do their best unite together under the biblical authority entrusted us under the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are many in Westerville, there are many in the state of Ohio, there are many in this United States, there are many around the world that have no knowledge of God, the Bible, and the saving message of the gospel. The church is, is the church, the body of Christ is God's plan day to reach the world. That's what he left us with. That's what Jesus left us with. The question we have to ask is, do we look any different from the rest of the world? And if we don't, there there is a major, major problem with that. You know, the Joshua Project was a very helpful online resource tool to to look at um, mission-type things, people groups, that sort of thing. And I I just looked this past week. It says, Joshua Project's projects that there are 17,443 people groups in the world. If you look at Matthew 28, 19... It uses this word, the gospel will preach to all nations. Well, that, that word in the Greek is kind of translated as ethne. Now, ethne is not, uh, is not the, translated into what we believe or what we see as nations. This is kind of where we get this idea of, of people groups. People groups that have different cultures, different languages, um, different traditions, that sort of thing. But out of those 17,443 people groups, 
Joshua Project predicts about 7,425 of them are considered to be unreached. Unreached meaning essentially that 2% of the population, less, or sorry, less than 2% of the population is, are identified as Christian. So less than 2% identified as Christian. Surprisingly enough, found out that 98 of those people groups live right here in the United States of America, in our backyard. Some here in Columbus, Ohio. Now this is not a debate on foreign policy or border control. They are here and they have no knowledge of God. And we do not have laws, from what I know, might change tomorrow, but we do not have laws or restrictions, from what I know, that restrict us from taking Christ to those who have no reference or no idea of the gospel. So there are opportunities. We should open our eyes to see them. Get out of our drunken stupor. Stop worrying about the baptizing of the dead and step out in faith to make an impact here in our communities. And I'll close with this. Um, I think it was perfect timing for this, but last week, if you were with us at our members' meeting, uh, we had the opportunity, uh, very, very neat opportunity, to hear from um, two individuals, a uh, married couple, um, that uh, I won't mention their names or where they're serving just for security purposes, um, but serve at a, a South Asian country. Uh, a South Asian country that um, is, uh, is not very open to the idea of, of conversion. People trusting in Christ. And it was very neat just to, to hear their story of what they're doing and what they're working towards and planting churches in very small, remote, hard-to-get-to places. The nice thing with them is they are natives, so, so, so they know the language, they know the culture, they, they, they know the people. But they, they, are, they are training up pastors, they have, they have a Bible college that they are training up people, um, they, they are planting churches, many churches throughout these little small tiny villages and areas where people don't know who, who, who Jesus is. Um, but the thing that, that got me, and, and my wife and I kind of talked about it, is that they have conversion laws. There, where, where if somebody converts to another religion or whatever, um, there, there's consequences for that. And um, they said that um, if they were found out about uh, sharing the gospel with these people, um, that they would go to jail for six years. They would go to jail. And the thing that, that struck them the most when they were sharing that, this, that they that said that they were ready to go to jail if the Lord sends them there. They have not yet, so they will, they will continue to preach the gospel faithfully and without hesitation. Um, but if they go to jail, I, lo I love this. If they go to jail, there are thousands of people in prison that they can minister to and share their faith with. The gospel will advance whether in prison or not. The government can't stop them. The government can't stop what the Lord wants to do. And I heard that. And I thought to myself, Buzz, you coward. These people are putting their lives, their freedom on the line, potential incarceration. And you're afraid of sharing the gospel because you care what other people think about you. Jesus Christ is worth sharing. <clears throat> He's worth being sent to prison for. He's worth dying for. And I want to challenge us to think about that as a church. Because we have a resurrection hope that surpasses so much. Because he, Christ died a wretched death that rose again.
so that we might be saved. And if you are not a Christian in this room, I pray that you would place your faith in Jesus, that you have this type of resurrection. I'll end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Because if you preach a citizen, you better have a Spurgeon quote sometime. But Spurgeon said this. He said, it is the whole job of the whole church to preach the gospel, the whole gospel to the whole world. May it be so in our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you show us. We thank you for the gospel and the resurrection that we have so much hope in this world because of you. But there are many that are perishing that do not have this hope. Lord, put it on our hearts to be faithful to what you've called us to do in the Great Commission and that we can and we will be raised with you one day because your word is trustworthy and it is true. We love you, Lord. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.